Hi, readers. Welcome to Books Connect Us from Penguin Random House. This is a podcast about staying connected with each other and the stories and authors who inspire us. The new book, Empireland, is an illuminating tour through the hidden legacies and modern realities of the British Empire that exposes how much of the present-day United Kingdom is actually rooted in its colonial past. In accessible, witty prose, award-winning journalist and best-selling author Satnam Sangara traces this legacy back to its source, exposing how imperial domination has shaped the United Kingdom we know today. Empireland boldly makes the case that in order to understand America, we must first understand British imperialism. Now let's join author Satnam Singera in conversation with his editor, Lisa Lucas. Hi, I am Lisa Lucas, um, the publisher of Pantheon and Shockin Books, and I'm here today to talk about Empireland with its author, Satnam Singera. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Of I guess course. you have to because you're my editor. Yeah, fair enough. And I'm just glad that you're here in New York. Yes, it's the first time I've been here at winter time. Really? I associate it with heavy heat and it's um it's nice. It's very festive. Yeah, it's festive. It's a little bit cold. We're all mortified. Um how are you enjoying the dark? The dark? Mm-hmm. Was it dark very early? Yeah. It's a very bright day today, so it is a bright yeah, day today, but it's I've, like I've but, got you a know. bit of a tan. Daylight savings, which is apparently going away this year, um, right. started, and we're all very sad. And I recommend a sad lamp. Well, everything's bright compared to London at this time of year. London, where I just was, is quite dark. Um, that is dark. So we're here to talk about London and environ. Um, so tell me about Empire Land. This is a book that came out last year in the UK, um, two years ago, year and a half. A while ago. Yeah. And it was a bit of a lightning rod. You want to talk a little bit about the book, what it is, and how it was received? Yeah, it's a book about how British Empire has shaped a lot of things about Britain, its politics, its language, its culture, its money. And yet Britain itself doesn't seem to realize. And mm-hmm. yet it was the biggest thing Britain ever did. And uh, the disconnect and how that screws us up. Right. But it seems odd. And, and I'll ask you more about the reception. But it seems odd. Like, right, you have... All of this, the crown even. I just finished watching mm-hmm. the crown. And we're looking at the dissolution of the Commonwealth to some degree, right? And the end of this, you know, imperial moment or quote unquote imper- end of the imperial moment. But like how could it not be something that we reckon with? How could it be something that, that the UK doesn't reckon with and mm. that the world doesn't reckon with? I think the world is better at reckoning with it than the British, which is very odd. Mm-hmm. The British see themselves primarily as the country that beat the evil racist Germans in World War II, alone, without America or the empire. Um, and it sees itself as the country that abolished slavery without having sent three million Africans across the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. So he likes to focus on the positives. And it doesn't really like to think about the tricky uh, history of empire, which is tricky emotionally, morally, economically, in every possible way. And why is that? Why don't people want to face the obvious? I think it's painful. I think it's very difficult to get your head around it because it's it's very complicated history. You went on for an uncertain amount of time. People argue about every aspect of it, whereas World War II is very simple. It's a clear beginning, clear end, clear morality, and empire is all over the place. Mm-hmm. You know, especially when it involves things like the East India Company. People, well, I didn't really understand how that was related to to the government mm-hmm. and. 
It's a very complex history. Right. I do wonder, though, with World War II, you know, it's clean lines now. It's been clean lines for most of my lifetime. But Ken Burns is at this documentary, which was America during World War II, which actually like sort of like this good guy understanding of the United States is like, we just did the thing and we're great. And it was like, this was your policy on immigration. And this is the number of Jewish people that were trying to immigrate to the United States that couldn't. Yeah. And and Winston Churchill, of course, great war hero, probably the most famous man in British history, but had very difficult, complicated views on colonialism and arguably was responsible for a famine during World War II in India, which resulted in the death of millions. Right. And so I wonder if that that cleanness of World War II and our need to revisit what was actually happening under the surface, the details of the war, is similar yeah. to how you approach the details of empire. Totally. And people talk about the blitz spirit during World War II, where Londoners were so brave. And actually, if you look at the history, it wasn't that simple. People were, were, Not everyone was behaving well. Mm-hmm. People were worried and scared and doing horrible things to each other. Right. So where do you start with empire? Where do you start with, like, I mean, it's, it's such a big history. It's such a long, sprawling, convoluted, difficult to pin down history. And this yeah. is accessible. This book is like, and we'll talk more about the reception in the UK, but it's something that is like, it's not an easy read. Like, it's not a dumb read, but it's it's also like welcoming. It's Hope like, so, yeah. Um, I like to explain things clearly. I think clarity is a much underrated literary quality. So it actually, it's much harder to write clear stuff mm-hmm. than to write dense history. I'm not an historian, and actually I'm not someone who would read history books because I find them dense. They don't focus on the things I care about, like character, emotion. And I guess I've, it's, this is a history book for people who don't normally read about history, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And it's a way of explaining things that they vaguely wanted to understand, but hopefully in a way that is accessible and occasionally even funny. Yeah, it's very funny, actually. There's not a massive amount of humor in genocide and colonialism, but there is some. Well, the reality is is it's absurd how people have behaved. And from a distance, it's it's, obviously it's devastating. Obviously, it's miserable history. But it's like, but it's just crazy how people get themselves into these headspaces where they think that this is the right thing to do. There's, There's humor there. Yeah, but actually, uh, a lot of British people hearing what you've just said mm-hmm. would be very angry because they would say they believe that British Empire was benign. It spread Western technology, morality, Christianity across the planet, and we should be grateful for it. Mm-hmm. And I think the rest of the world sees it in a different way because the rest of the world knows what British Empire involved because they had British Empire done to them. Mm-hmm. Whereas the British, can Im- they don't know what it involved because it happened abroad. Right. There wasn't a dark night of the soul where they ever had to confront the history in the way that France did after World War Two. Right. And the re- consequences haven't even all been written yet. Um, anyway, I was listening to some audio of the prime minister, the new prime minister of the Barbados, who was talking about sort of just like how you have to reimagine the way that we redistribute wealth and do reparations for climate change, you know, because the the destruction mm. and the money lending that came out of World War II to developing nations, to countries that were recovering from World War II, were not equivalent. Yeah, and if you're talking about the legacies of empire, the richest MP in British Parliament is James Drax, and Barbados are, are planning to sue him and Jamaica because his his ancestors set up the very plantations that started this sugar revolution in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. And so you can trace his wealth Directly to the murder, I think, of about 30,000 slaves. You know? Unbelievable. And that's the way in which empire continues to shape Britain. And right. it's amazing. People didn't know about James Drax, yeah. his history, until recently. Right. 
I mean, there's so much that we're all discovering. So how do you, so again, back to this idea of like how you tell this big, massive story. Where do you start? Where did you want to end up? You know, how do you wade through this history? I mean, well, the thing is, people argue about where British Empire began. So mm-hmm. you can start in 10 different places. I began with the island of Run, which was a very small island in the Far East, which was the only known source of nutmeg. And British food was so tasteless that the British and the Dutch went to war over the only known source of nutmeg. And actually, that war went on for ages and they fought over this island. And as part of the settlement, the British inherited an island on the east of America called New Amsterdam. And here we are. Right on. So that's where you start. And where do you want to end up? Without giving too much away. I think you're right. The the legacies are still playing out. There's an event every two or three months which... It can be explained by empire. I mean, the queen's death. She was born at a time where empire was the largest empire in human history. You know, covered a quarter of the planet. When she died, empire was mostly gone, and we and the union of Britain was falling apart. You know, Scotland might no no longer be part of Britain. So that's a massive change. Mm-hmm. And also, we recently got our first Indian prime minister. That is something that can be explained by empire. Mm-hmm. So something happens every few weeks where you can see the legacy is still playing out. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to carry on during our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. And is there any upside to the legacy of empire? Well, I wouldn't be in Britain if it wasn't for empire. Mm-hmm. You know, so one of the main reasons Britain's a multicultural society is because it had a multicultural empire. Mm-hmm. And I can't really say that that's a negative thing. No. I, I mean, it's that, just like, know. I mean, imagine. It's, it's so weird to sort of, you know, try to find an upside to these things. The transatlantic slave trade empire. Do you know what I mean? These things that move, that change the world, right? Even Bob mm. Moses, I think, is a really funny one, right? Because he was such a terrible person and he just just ran roughshod all over New York City. Never elected. Not once in his life. Mm. And um, has this disproportionate power and then does actually do some things that really like, can you imagine New York City without the bridges? Can you imagine it without this stuff, right? So yeah. in what ways do you think, uh, just a few like granular ways, like obviously you, you are the, the best yeah. thing. Um, but what other, like, really economically viable or culturally important mm. things come from empire? Well, the English language mm-hmm. is the most spoken language in the world, largely because of the British Empire, also because of America. And, you know, a lot of that, a lot of the words themselves are a reflection of the history. A lot of them come from Indian languages, Native American, the word toboggan mm-hmm. comes from a Native American word. Uh, so that is a pretty neutral legacy. The way in which British people spread around the planet. Wherever you go, mm-hmm. you see a British person or someone whose family was British. So we're saying that's definitely good. Always, I'm just but... kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but you also see a lot of Sikhs. I'm Sikh. Mm-hmm. I always find wherever you go in the world, there's a Sikh taxi driver. And that is a legacy yeah. of British Empire. So I feel like, it, so proportionally in the UK, like are there, is, what's the population of, like what's the Sikh population in the UK? It's very small. I think it's about 300,000. We're about the same th- size community as the Jewish community in Britain. Mm-hmm. And I think... What's the community in the U.S.? Do you know? I don't know. Actually. I think it's actually either similarly sized or possibly larger. Yeah. I think we compete to be the fourth biggest religion in the world uh, mm-hmm. alongside the Jews. So you've written about your background and about your you know, heritage in a memoir, um, which is excellent. Um, but how did you sort of weave in who you are to this book? And why? What I didn't realize was how much the Sikh identity has been shaped by British Empire. The Sikhs 
quite a small community in India as well. You know, they, they're famous for wearing turbans and having long beards. Uh, quite a liberal community by tradition. Um, but they took the side of the British during the famous Indian mutiny of 1857. So the British decided that we were loyal. But then they developed this weird racial, racial science about us and other groups. And they decided that Sikhs were great at fighting, as you can tell, my <laughs> physique, uh, that we were loyal. And so they, we represented a disproportionate amount in the, in the British Indian army. And the British Sikhs now see themselves through the prism of British Empire. That's how we view ourselves. Mm-hmm. And actually, there's evidence that the British Sikh, the, the Sikh community in India was actually declining until the British adopted us and suddenly lots of people converted because they wanted to be indulged by the British. Mm-hmm. So, but at the same time, a lot of Sikhs also fought British Empire. And there's something called the Ghadar movement, which took on British Empire. So the history is complex, but I think of all the communities in India... The, the, the Sikhs are a good prism through which to look at empire because we sometimes took its side and sometimes didn't. So I'm going to ask you about the reception in the larger British community in a minute. But first, I'm curious what the reception in the Sikh community and in the Indian community was to empire land. Mostly really positive, I guess. I think culturally, we're not a particularly literary community. I think there's an emphasis on work and achievement. But there aren't a huge amount of Sikh writers in Britain anyway. And I don't think we reflect that much on, upon ourselves. So I, f- I feel that my ignorance and the things I discovered, a lot of Sikhs discovered at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so I, I know a lot of Sikhs have used that as a starting point to do their own investigation. So it's been quite satisfying. That's great. Mm. Um, it's been maybe less warm with the larger <laughs> um, the, the, the larger uh, general population of the United Kingdom. How's that gone? Yeah, I mean... It, there's a really positive side in that it's being taught. It's been embraced by history teachers, which is amazing. But yeah, there's been a, a big backlash, I guess. I get every, just have a look at my Twitter feed on any day and you'll see me getting a lot of racist, racist abuse, often related to empire. And there's an idea that brown people should be grateful for what British empire did. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the greatness of British empire. There's a view in Britain that empire was great. It, gave India the railways and it taught them to be semi-civilized and it gave all the black people in the Caribbean, or you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And that is a dominant view. And it's been embraced by the right-wing government right. as a kind of culture war. There is absolutely a culture war. Um, it's different here. Has the book been banned anywhere in the United Kingdom? Uh, like, like, I guess, yes, soft bannings happen all the time. But yeah. has it been visibly banned? We're dealing with huge book bannings in the U.S. right now. We haven't quite got there. We got to the stage of people complaining, parents complaining uh, in social media about certain books being used by teachers. Mm-hmm. And so you decided to write a children's book. Yeah, I thought I'd just make thing even, things even worse for myself. <laughs> <laughs> I actually didn't want to write the kids' book because uh, I didn't want to um, kind of neutralize the difficult story of empire. Violence was a big part of empire. Right. And I didn't want to pretend that it wasn't just mm-hmm. to make it palatable for kids. Mm-hmm. But my publishers have allowed me to explore some of the violence. Right. I mean, the reality is how many decades and years and years and years of children faced violence living in empire. Yeah. And, you know, enslaved children. The number of children who died building, helping to build railways, helping to transport plants to build plantations and Mm -hmm. it was routine 
What do you think the best outcome of writing this book and writing the, you know, the um, Young Readers Edition, what do you hope that it does for people? It blows my mind that kids, I mean, I guess teenagers are reading the book, have the kind of knowledge that it took me until the age of 45 to f- discover. Mm-hmm. And I supposedly had one of the best educations in the world. Mm-hmm. And I, I think if I knew that stuff, it would have changed my life. So they're going to go into adulthood with just empowered, right, with knowledge. right, And that makes me really grateful and excited. And for the adults who are reading it and reacting to it? and Yeah, so, you know, I get a lot of letters uh, one from people saying they want to kill me, but also some older people also write to me saying they've changed their minds. They've realized that their education gave them a, a, a warped idea of history, which I find amazing that you can get to the age of 70 or 80 and change your mind. Mm-hmm. And that is very heartening. Yeah, I was with somebody at a lunch and he and he had gone on some tour of the South, like, uh, like a, not like a tour, like a plantation tour, but had gone on this like nonprofit organization, really well-known and well-respected social justice organization and had gone down to the Deep South and he was like, everything I thought about race in America has changed. So it really is one interaction with something that clarifies or... Yeah. Um, but what do you want for the American audience? So, like, this is a book that's very much a British book, right, at Foundation. It's yeah. about British Empire. It is about what it has wrought. Um, it's about, you know, where you're from and how and why does the American reader want to engage with this? I think British people are very unaware of how British Empire shaped them. Mm-hmm. But equally, America's very unaware of how British Empire has shaped it. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can understand American history without understanding British Empire. Not least, America was a creation of British Empire for quite, well over a century. Mm-hmm. We shaped Britain in all sorts, sorry, shaped America in all sorts of cultural, psychological, financial yeah, ways. Yeah, I was hedging earlier because I didn't know exactly how many hundreds of years. So I was just like, tens, you know, done many, many years. <laughs> yeah, I actually looked it up. I think, I think it's about 150 or 125. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's uh, how did the slaves get here? Britain was often involved. Where did the cotton go to? He often went to Britain. Um, where did these racist ideas come from which enabled slavery? Lots of them from uh, Britain, from British thinkers. The Enlightenment, which enabled and promoted racism, was, wasn't was just uh, something that happened in England or Scotland or America. It happened simultaneously. It varied slightly in America and in Scotland and in, and in England, but it's fundamentally the same ideas. Yeah. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons the baddies in Hollywood movies are always played by British actors is because... Of British Empire, because Americans think of the British Empire as evil because you got rid of it. And America stands for the exact opposite. It stands for democracy and freedom. But actually, the Americans are totally shaped by it. And America arguably has recreated British Empire. as It's, it's got an empire of its own, hasn't it? Say more. Yeah. And, well, it's involved in Africa. It's involved, it had its own colonies. Yeah. I think people, I asked to say more because I don't think people really understand what an imperial United States looks like. Yeah, and, and, and organizations at like United Nations, the World Bank, IMF. Well, this is what the the woman from Barbados is directly challenging, is saying we need to change the World Bank and IMF, which is an interesting legacy. Yeah. Saying this whole financially supportive institution that came out of World War II is actually designed to support 
imperial nations yeah, and, and not any of us. And when the rules of warfare, like the Geneva Convention, were originally established, uh, dominated by the Americans and the British, you know, there were exceptions made for the savage people. Mm-hmm. You, you didn't have to play by the same rules when, it, when you were fighting these, the savages in Africa. And though that hypocrisy has gone straight into the oh. war, war on terror and the way in which we talk about the enemies of the West. Well, it's almost like when 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 Britain was doing empire, right? <laughs> it's making it up as it goes, right? It's saying, yeah. how do I demonize these people? How do I feel how do I get a bunch of soldiers to feel okay about trashing these people's lives that have done nothing to them, that are not bad people and don't deserve this in any way? How do I demonize them? And then that happens in real time, but in the US you sort of have this immediate moment of kind of Taking that ethos, bringing it here, and starting a whole country in that spirit. Yeah. It's all mine. It's really interesting looking at, you know, Queen Elizabeth I mm-hmm. was the f- first monarch who was involved in slavery. She lent her boats to enable the slave trade. Mm-hmm. But at one point, she heard about what was being involved, that black, black people were being kidnapped, and she freaked out. Mm-hmm. She was like, oh, my God, we can't do this. This is not humane or a British-English thing to do. Right. But then, obviously, it's such a powerfully important financial thing. It continues anyway, and she gets into it. But that's the thing you notice when you read the contemporary stuff. Empire and colonialism was opposed all the time. Mm-hmm. And that actually, that itself is a great British and, and Western tradition to oppose this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, who did you look to, you know, as you were sort of learning and thinking about empire? What are some of the writers that, like, actually gave you what you needed, taught you the things that you needed to attack. Who were you able to look to? Well, I'm totally reliant on other people's, on historians' work because I'm not an historian. I'm not doing primary research. But equally, the book that I wanted to read or wanted to write didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been trying to work out why haven't, why hasn't an historian written this book? Mm-hmm. And I've been asking historians and they often say, look, historians are very focused on their one particular field. They won't look at everything as a whole and come to a grand conclusion. And actually it takes a general writer or a journalist to put it all together. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe that's the advantage of being a non-historian. And you can break the rules and you can add humor Mm -hmm. and you can say we sometimes, (laughs) which you can't as a historian. Fair enough. It's it's got to be dispassionate, right? Yeah. What do you think Jan Morris would have made of this? Oh God, I'm obsessed with Jan Morris. Me too. I've gone to the house Mm. in Wales. Oh really? Wow. Not till I just like drove by it. Because mm. I was obsessed. But she famously wrote one of the most nostalgic and really authoritative books on British Empire. Mm-hmm. Before she died, she died recently, yeah. she gave an interview about her trilogy and she incredibly said she was ashamed. Mm-hmm. And I found that amazing. It shows how what a great writer she was. she was. She could disagree with herself. She could be, she was extraordinary because she'd come up with an opinion, she would change and, you know, and it was just so open. Yeah. You know, everything. The, whether... pro- the problem is her work has been taken mm-hmm. by people who really love their empire. It's taught at Eton. Mm-hmm. Our prime ministers have absorbed it. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's caused a lot of damage. So it's okay, fair enough, she's changed, changed her mind. Right. But, people really believe in what she said. Right. And you can't take back the book. I mean, there's a permanence to literature, right? Yeah. Um, because it takes on its own ideas. Um, that book, the Ibram X. Kendi book, um, Stamped from the Beginning, which takes like, it's like the history of racist ideas in America, which takes a lot of source text, where the authors may or may not have meant what it was understood to be. But it's the same thing as this idea of taking empire and thinking about race and creating the black and white other, mm. you know, and then transmitting it, a whole stock, to another nation. 
Yeah, and Britain really sees itself as an anti-racist nation. Hmm. So I think that's been at the heart of the hostility I've got. They don't want to hear that we were willfully white supremacists for at least a century. They said definitely don't want to hear a brown person saying that. <laughs> so it, it's doubly problematic for a lot of Brit- uh, nostalgic British white people, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, so speaking of nostalgia, you know, one of the things that's in the book and one of the things that's happening here um, is that we're reckoning not only with our history, but with the way that we memorialize our history. All of the monuments and statues and building names. And um, and I'm curious the differences between and the similarities between those movements to sort of reimagine what we should value and memorialize. In general, America is much more, much better at using contemporary stuff to inspire memorials in that mm-hmm. you often get Michael Jackson Street or whatever, <laughs> you know. Whereas in Britain, the, the street names and the, the monuments have been in place for centuries. So it's much harder for people. Even though the names mean nothing, they get people get very, very cross. The idea of a, a name being changed because of history. Mm-hmm. And I think the Americans are better, in a way, at this stuff. Even though we look down on America. Yeah, I mean, we are maybe better in the sense that, like, former presidents had, you know, have been called into question about naming a building or da 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 because they were slave owners. Yeah. I, you can't imagine people taking the queen or the monarchy off the money. No, and people go crazy if any, if you point out Winston Churchill's racist opinions. <laughs> they go absolutely. And I won't... Uh, Boris Johnson, prime minister, you know, found time in the middle of the COVID crisis to come out to put, to protest about the way in which a statue of Winston Churchill had been treated. You know, you think there's hundreds of thousands of people dying and you're going to make a statement about a statue. Who was prime minister during Grenfell? I think it was it Boris. Did he show up? Oh, maybe it was Theresa. There's been so many prime ministers. It was Theresa May and she it showed up for like Theresa. five minutes. That's what it was. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, anyway, I, you know, I... I am really excited for American readers to read this. I think that it is um, an extraordinary book, and um, it's already been on this week tonight. You know, I was getting wrong. Is last it, week I just call it. I call it the John Oliver show. The John Oliver show. Um, <laughs> the last week with John Oliver. Last it? week tonight with John Oliver. <laughs> I think that's what it's called. Something but in like any that. case, it's already been on air. Um, and I think people are going to have a pretty fun time having uh, lots of conversations. Although I do hope that our fine nation <laughs> treats your, if Twitter still exists, treats your um, your Twitter account a little better. Yeah, there's no sign of that happening, but thank you for the sentiment. Thank you for listening to Books Connect Us. For more great book recommendations and information about your favorite authors, feel free to follow Penguin Random House on social media or visit penguinrandomhouse.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps more listeners to find our show. This podcast is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. I've been Aaron Leaf. And until next time, this has been Books Connect Us.